difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Tasha Robinson. Keith Phipps. And Genevieve Kosky. On the first half of this episode, we looked at Stanley Kubrick's anti-war film, Paths of Glory, about three French soldiers court-martialed for cowardice in the face of the enemy during World War I. On this half, we turn again to the Great War with Wonder Woman, the new DC blockbuster about Diana Prince, a.k.a. Princess Diana, a demigoddess who travels from the secluded island of Themyscira to London in the battlefields of World War I. With the war drawing to a close, a German general and his scientists are putting the finishing touches on a particularly nasty form of mustard gas that could turn the tide in the Germans' favor. It's up to Wonder Woman, played by Gal Gadot, and her American escort, pilot Steve Trevor, played by Chris Pine, to end the war once and for all. What in the world could a $150 million superhero movie and Stanley Kubrick's 60-year-old war movie have in common? We'll talk it out after the break. What is your mission? To stop the war. What war? The war to end all wars. Weapons far deadlier than you can ever imagine. The war can be ours. Wherever you are, you are in more danger than you think. I cannot stand by while innocent lives are lost. Be careful, Diana. Who is this woman? She's my um, secretary, sir. She's a very good secretary. It is our sacred duty to defend the world. And it's what I'm going to do. All right, straight up. What did you think of Wonder Woman? You know, it's been treated fairly well. Or where do you stand in the um, consensus on this thing? I'm pro Wonder Woman. It's not a perfect movie. It definitely has flaws, but I was engaged and moved by it. I actually cried a lot at this movie for for reasons that really just boil down to like being affected by spectacle and having a woman at the center of that spectacle. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I mean I think Godot is an incredible presence at the center of this film, and, and Chris Pine, both of the lead performances in the, in this, I think do a lot to bring the film across. But like I said, I do have some issues with it, mainly centering on the third act, just, you know, the boring CGI go boom elements mm-hmm. of it. But other than that, my complaints are minor. Keith? I dug it. Uh, yeah, I liked it a lot. You know, I, it's a character I'm, I'm very fond of, and, and I know there's a lot more writing on this in, in other ways than, than other superhero movies. And But, I mean, I was really happy to see the character done right. She, it's, a, it's a tricky character because there's all kinds of strange continuity and history to her. And, and I think it would be very easy to do a Wonder Woman who has no connection to humanity whatsoever, and that is not what Gal Gadot's performance is at all. Um, it's, it's a wonderfully humane performance. And just as, as someone who would, like, more good superhero movies instead of fewer it's nice to see the dc kind of getting his act together for Mm. for for this movie i have not enjoyed the last few no what about you tasha i i mean i think my expectations were set by how much i've consistently hated the dc extended universes movies (laughs) how much how many problems i've had with them both just in terms of them all kind of being narratively messy and or just 
and sensitive to basic humanity. Well, can we talk about which ones those are? Because because uh, there are there have been DC movies that aren't part of the extended universe. Sure, and the extended are. universe is Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, and Suicide Squad. Like that's there have been other DC related movies in the past, but those are the official ones recognized by the continuity that's leading up to the Justice League movie. This is sort of the oh crap we have to do an MCU of our own, uh, uh, or sort of a oh, so whoopee su- we could yeah. be making but the, the, yeah, Marvel money if we just figured out what the formula is but the nolan films are not part of right it. correct right. I mean, so, so wait so then the suicide squad people they, they're going to be in the justice league movie no i don't think uh, so i think there's they're, they're, there's a there's, little stinger at the end or the little post credits of suicide squad like setting up setting it. up suicide squad versus justice league confrontation yeah. down the line okay. somewhere in you know 2037 if okay. if the whole franchise thing doesn't eventually dry up and blow away because it's really kind of a terrible way to approach movie making so we're really we're talking about batman superman wonder woman more Batman or less. V Superman. We're gonna we're, we're gonna <laughs> Dawn have, of Justice. We're gonna Justice. have Aquaman and the Flash and uh, okay. someone else. Yeah, uh, Cyborg. Which I'm not sure the Cyborg movie has even been no. dated yet. But and that's... Shazam. Shazam's in the works too. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> ah, franchises. I hate I hate you. I hate you so much. Anyway. What your pity to Wonder Woman? Expectations set very low. And unlike Keith, I've never had any kind of attachment to Wonder Woman. I mean, mm. I grew up wondering, watching Wonder Woman cartoons, but I just – I never really connected with the character. I always thought she was pretty silly. So I ended up just really loving but how down-to-earth and physical this movie makes her and how it kind of brings her into something a little more like – the, the balance between – real world enough to be believable and fantastical enough to be fun is a difficult one with superhero movies. And it's it feels like one that we didn't necessarily get right until the MCU started up. But I feel like it, it really hits here. I enjoyed this both as a fantastical escapist movie and as just a, a, an interesting story like set in a World War One that I could kind of believe. For me, I mean, just in the context of the summer, it was a relief just to see a competently made. <laughs> <laughs> did you not see Guardians too? I did see Guardians two, which really, which was, which I found quite dull. Yeah, I actually didn't um, care for it uh, either. But and, it's uh, kind of. And so this one felt much more propulsive and, and cleaner. I mean, just it's just a nice, well told story, and I don't mean that condescendingly. I think it's a kind of a tough movie to pull off, and, and it, uh, it does, for the most part, pull it off the third act which again we'll get into but i think that the director here patty jenkins does follow that superman model which is a good one because you're dealing with a character who is not a human being who is removed from humanity for entire life and then has to figure out what they're all about but the other aspect of it is is that it's on jenkins to make her into a demigoddess into someone of extraordinary stature and power of someone who is who, who is in terms of strength is far above what or mortals can, can be and, and I, I feel like the film has that a sense of that scope and, and bigness really uh, so I appreciated that about the movie. What it reminds me of more than anything is Anna Kendrick making Pitch Perfect 2. There was a scene where the Green Bay Packers show up for the, the latest <laughs> sing-off. I remember that. And she... It's a riff-off, Tasha. Good point. Uh, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to riff you for that later. <laughs> I, I I will I will apologize for getting that wrong. <laughs> Anna Kendrick said in relation to being around the Green Bay Packers that she could not believe she was the same species as them. Mm-hmm. And that is how I felt watching this movie was, you know, in theory, I'm the same species as Gal Gadot. 
And in theory, I'm the same gender as Gal Gadot. And in practice, <laughs> I'm not sure either of those things is true. I mean, she is on screen as Wonder Woman. Like, she is a superhero. She is an aspirational creature. She is something that, that you can see as sort of the same, like living on the same planet as the rest of us. But I just think they, in terms of, of costume design, in terms of action choreography, and in terms of the performance she gives, she really does come across as a convincing, like otherworldly goddess figure. Mm-hmm. And then you know, getting to that second act where she has to um, grow accustomed to a world so far removed from the one she's mm-hmm. come from, this uh, idyllic paradise to you know this smoke-filled gray... Um, it's hideous. It's, <laughs> um, and I and I loved it because like that scene where they're entering war torn London. That shot looks like a shot from one of the Snyder DCEU. Oh yeah, like yeah. The, the progression of her like leaving Themyscira and and moving to the real world is the progression of her leaving like Patty Jenkins' world and going to Zack Snyder world. Yeah. And it's kind of a, a fantastic yeah. diss in but a then, way. But then you get like an amazing clothes trying on sequence and you get <laughs> at a candy and like, you know, and, and it... And a it, baby. <laughs> yeah, a baby. And ice cream, ice of cream. course. Ice cream. Yeah. Which, and, which apparently the has... The reaction to that baby is like the world reacting to the, the baby and children of men. <laughs> I, like it looks visually the same and it feels pretty much the well, same. they don't have babies on the mascara. Well, of course. Yeah. She's presumably read about them but has never actually seen one in person. That was one of my favorite touches, is that how much she, she knew from books. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's a lovely touch. My, my actual favorite scene in the whole film is not an action scene. It's the scene with her and Steve Trevor on the boat, mm-hmm. leaving the mascara and just kind of talking and getting to know each other. And it's when she like reveals that she's read all 12 volumes of was it Cleo's treaties on passion or whatever you know and like she's not a babe in the woods like she mm-hmm. she is wise she does know stuff she's just like in a from a very different world and I loved seeing the interaction of those two worlds coming together and are necessary for reproduction but not for pleasure yeah which you know pretty subtly underlines the fact that like they're they're not living a sexless existence on mm-hmm. this woman only like island you know they've they've all been around according mm-hmm. to Armin White they are yeah oh, that was a <laughs> Whatever. (laughs) We don't need to go into that. But I I don't know. The sort of color scheme and like the vividness of the mascara is fun and is something that we don't get enough of. Like Suicide Squad had its uh, like its crazy day glow colors and the Zack Snyder films have their incredibly dreary, uh, you know, heavy blue and gray motif. But here we get a blue sky that is beautiful and uh, like the colors of the costumes, like it's all just so intense and vivid. And then when we step into, quote unquote, the real world, There's a visual contrast and a a tonal contrast that's just really important to the story and that I like a lot. But you talk about her being uh, educated from books. I think one of the things that comes out of that that's so delicately balanced and that's really interesting is we get all of that fish out of water comedy, but it's not, you know, she's gormless and derpy Mm -hmm. because she doesn't know what she's doing comedy. It's not laughing at her, it's kind of laughing at us. It's laughing at like the absurdity of the world that she's walked into. And I think that's a lot more fun and a lot less dismissive than some fish out of water comedy can be. I mean, she's still not wholly familiar with, with various social mores and rules, right? I mean, sure. She, sure. Um, so the, there is that element there, which is great. I mean, I, I, I appreciated that 
beat of the st- story of being able, able to have a little bit of comic business. Apparently, uh, the the ice cream line, which is something I, I loved and the audience in the theater loved, is straight from the comics. I don't know which one, but I've so- seen it passed around several times this week. That's like an exact beat for beat from a comic. So it was actually uh, reproduced to an extent in one of the Justice League animated films. Yeah, but, you sent me that clip yeah. and it's, I mean, it's uh, tonally, it's very different. Yeah. Like she ends up like throwing her arms in the air and screaming like ice cream is terrific or something like yeah. that. <laughs> and it's just, it's a very different feeling. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of different takes on Wonder Woman and ice cream out there. But... Is there, is there some sort of history with the baby as well? Is there some, uh, I, something I, there too? Yeah. I don't know. I was just thinking. I about... was more interested in the ice cream than the baby. <laughs> I was, oh God. I was thinking about like, baby, 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 we made it out of clay. <laughs> 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 when it's dry, like that's how it basically is done on the island, right? Because they're all out of clay. Well, that's actually, I guess, something we could maybe get into is Diana's origin story, mm-hmm. which is left ambiguous here. Because I mean, kind of the original origin story from Diana is the one you talk about at the beginning, and the one that her her mother gives her in the movie is that she was sculpted from clay and brought to life by Zeus. But at the end of this movie, in the showdown with Ares, he makes a comment about her being made the old-fashioned way, insinuating that Hippolyta had a relationship with Zeus, which is from the 2011 New 52 version of Wonder Woman's origin, which, Keith, I'm kind of looking at you to expand on that further. I can expand a little. I mean, it's written by Brian Azzarella and mostly drawn by Cliff Chang. I didn't make it. I know people love that run. I didn't make it all the way to the end. Um, I just lost track of it. But yeah, that is where Zeus is, is her father, which is a uh, complete rewrite. Yeah, and, and she's taught to fight by Ares. Mm-hmm. So as I understand it, that change to her origin story is somewhat controversial among people who put a feminist reading on to Wonder Woman and that it attributes her power to a man. Mm-hmm. And Not so, just her power, her origin. I mean, yeah. William Moulton, who created the character, was very much a feminist and an idealist back in the 40s. He was in a polygamous relationship with two women. He <laughs> was really fascinated with bondage and had a lot of very strong beliefs about how it relaxed one. He, his his beliefs on bondage seemed to kind of mirror David Lynch's beliefs on transcendental meditation. Mm-hmm. Like he believed that it was this like great unlocking uh, of the psyche and he stuck all of these things in, in his book. And the idea of Wonder Woman being made out of clay is and being brought to life by Aphrodite, not Zeus. It's a parthenogenic origin story about two lesbian women producing a child without need from a man. And that was important to his story. And I mean, I'm not going to, this is not a hill I'm going to die on, you know, myths and legends evolve. It makes sense that there's a lot of stuff from those early Wonder Woman comics that this movie is not evoking, including Wonder Woman getting tied up every 30 seconds and or tying up other women every 30 seconds. So there's a lot of stuff that, you know. Still got the lasso, though. But she uses it more like a whip. And she uses it to, like, whip people into the air, which just from a physics perspective, that could be started. There's some truth, truth telling with the lasso. Yeah, except that it seems like... It warms up if you don't tell the truth, right? Which is weird, because instead of just like magically compelling people to tell the truth, it's like, no, we're just going to torture you. We're going to go like full Keith or Sutherland 24 and burn you until you tell the truth. It's it's worth noting that William Moulton Marston was also uh, not the inventor of the lie detector, but certainly a contributing scientist to to the lie detector. And, And then we have this last so truth. This is so much odd story. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. If you dig into the backstory of Wonder Woman, I am not 
phased by the fact that it doesn't all appear here. Yeah. Just the only reason I bring it up is because I think it's interesting that the movie does leave it ambiguous and kind of lets you decide for yourself whether Ares is telling the truth or if he is unreliable because he is the villain here. And whether it matters. Yeah. So there are three acts to this mm-hmm. film. <laughs> three very distinct acts. I think we may be on the same page about the relative strength of each of those acts <laughs> and maybe the trajectory of, of say, something you could, uh, a child would enjoy sliding down uh, uh, from, from the first to the third act. Um, any, anybody feel like it gets, gets good at the end? Or, or is, it, does, is, no, it, is but... it really just the first act is the strongest, the second act is quite is solid? And then maybe th- maybe things get in trouble in the third. I think you described the Superman movie, <laughs> Susan 78 <laughs> Superman, pretty accurately. And I think it's mostly true of this. I think I like the second act almost as well as the first yeah. act. Um, mm-hmm. The third act, my problems with it are not with the act as a whole. I, I do like the sort of Dirty Dozen or Suicide Squad, <laughs> if you will, that they, mm-hmm. they put together. I like all the, the supporting characters there. Really? Um, Why? Yeah, I do. I don't know. I just I enjoyed it. I Maybe not essential to the movie, but... Yeah, right. some rogues doing a job. Yeah. It's not very well developed, is it? No. But... Yeah, that's sort of my issue. But you like them for their personalities, I guess, more than their, their function? They're a little bit of both. I enjoyed... Well, I enjoyed is not the right word, but I thought, I thought the, the whole the Native American character who's a mercenary who says that his people took away my, my land, and, and yet here he is fighting a war. I thought that was, that was a nice little bit of pointed commentary. And I, actually, I thought the Steve Trevor... Spoiler. The Steve Trevor sacrifice at the end was quite affecting. I just don't like... This is a problem with the new mummy, which some of us saw last night. And I always trace it back to the best example I can think of is the end of Matrix Revolutions. I do not like climaxes that involve fights between people with superpowers where you don't know what their powers are, mm-hmm. how they can get hurt, what the limitations are. Like, you know, Ares throws Wonder Woman into like a block of concrete. I don't know if that's, I think that happens at one point, but let's just say, let's just say it happens. I don't know, will that hurt her or not? I have no idea. And, and I never really got a sense of who could win and who could lose this fight. And that stuff bugged me a lot. There's some nice visuals in it, though. And I, I like the visual of Ares as the god of war, as David Thewlis in like World War One gear floating in the air. I thought that was a really striking visual. But uh, yeah, it's not the best part of the movie. I usually agree with the idea that fights where you don't know what the rules are are not interesting. I think this maybe worked a little better for me than for some because it's this film is about her discovering herself. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't know what Ares is capable of. She doesn't know what she's capable of. We've seen her pull powers out of nowhere that she didn't know she had and find out that she's capable of doing things because they suddenly happened to her. So that part didn't bother me. What bothered me about the third act is that we go from a really pretty human story about somebody questioning what the world is and what her place is in it and whether humanity is worth saving, whether heroism is worth engaging in, whether any of these acts are ultimately meaningful to a bunch of CGI effects bouncing against each other. And I just, I didn't feel the stake. I felt the stakes of Trevor going up in that plane so much Mm -hmm. more strongly than I felt the stakes of CGI animated Wonder Woman bouncing off CGI animated Ares, which just felt like a scene out of Gods of Egypt. None of it felt real or connected to me at all. Yeah, I agree with everything that's been said. And I, I specifically agree that the it's really important to have Steve Trevor's side mission happening during this and the other rogues that... Uh, just call them the Howling Commandos, the off-brand Howling Commandos. <laughs> <laughs> I will not. It does ground the, uh, the action. And I think you see that combination of grounded action with big superhero spectacle in the No Man's Land battle, which is my favorite action sequence of the movie and happens in the second act. And as we learned this week, uh, Jenkins had to fight to keep 
in the movie, which is madness. Yeah, ridiculous. Well, I, I missed that story. What's, what's yeah? Some... People didn't understand why it was there. Yeah, Studio they, execs didn't. They, see they, the they wanted it. to get to the big blow them up battle mm. first, but she that was parts better. Yeah, it, she she was she was adamant, and she was right that like that is the fight where she becomes Wonder Woman, and when she realizes like what she can do and what she wants to do here among the world of men. Like I said, that was far and away my favorite action sequence of the movie. And I think it works really well because you do have Wonder Woman's fantastical CGI assisted powers at the center of it, you know, bullets ricocheting off her, but they're bullets ricocheting off of her. They're not like energy beams flying at her. And there are men with guns. There's physical action happening around her. And I actually just think it's a really well-directed sequence in terms of like you can see how one action inspires the next. Like it's very easy to follow. It's not necessarily as affecting or riveting as the No Man's Land sequence in uh, Paths of Glory. But I think just as like pure superhero modern CGI spectacle action, it's really good at kind of blending the grounded human aspect of that with the big superhero CGI blow them up. I am going to go out on a limb and say I liked the second act better than the first act. Oh. I, I think that this film peaks at the second act. Get them off the island. I think that it peaks at that uh, at that battlefield sequence. Yeah, I, think I, I might that, actually be coming around to agreeing with you after seeing it a second time. I think that the fish out of water stuff is really strong uh, and that Wonder Woman's interaction with, with the military leaders and with uh, the people in the bar, with all of these outside world people who – she this is a this is a point where she in a lesser movie would experience a lengthy crisis of faith mm-hmm. and or like find herself pushed down and just the fact that the fact that she remains such a strong character in contrast with a familiar world and such an alien character but mm-hmm. such an appealingly alien character is what made the movie for me i mean i love the no man's land action sequence but even more so than that i love her interacting with london and the way they return over and over to the dynamic of Steve Trevor saying, I know more than you do here. You need to behave in a certain way. You need to do what I say. You need to go over here. You need to be quiet. You need to not come into this room. You need to stand behind me. And every single time... not carrying a sword and shield into the streets. (laughs) Every single time he's wrong. Uh, Every single time she... And she doesn't make a big deal out of it. And the movie doesn't make a big deal out of it. She just refuses to stand behind him and let him give her orders when she knows what she's doing. And that is a hero movie for me and she's also the questions i guess that she's faced with that she's having to deal with about her relationship with mankind and whether they're salvageable and those are more complex questions than maybe she was facing uh, back home Mm -hmm. uh, which is a little bit more perhaps a more familiar like i'm a person of destiny this is there's a line in the where she's moana right moana right (laughs) um so um but she's also superman from man of steel i mean that's one of the things that fascinates me about this movie is that it hits the exact same themes that the dceu has been going back Mm. to of what does it mean to be a hero does humanity deserve heroes what kind of difference can heroes make how can heroes be important and impactful? I just think this movie addresses those same issues so much better than Man of Steel did. Yeah. Speaking of connections to other movies, uh, we'll be right back after this break to talk more about the connections between Paths of Glory and Wonder Woman and what their approaches to World War One have in common. Please slow down. Diana. That's your leader? 
How could he say that? Believe that? And, and you, with your duty to simply give them a book, no. you didn't stand your ground, you didn't fight. Because there was no chance of changing his mind. This is Aries, and he's not going to allow a negotiation or a surrender. The millions of people you talked about, they will die. We are Might going we... anyway. You mean you were lying? I'm a spy, that's what I do. How do I know you're not lying to me right now? I am taking you to the front. We are probably going to die. This is a terrible idea. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. All the things they have in common. Uh, Paths of Glory <laughs> and Wonder so, Woman. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to start with was leadership. The relationship between leaders and soldiers and, and the idea of leading by example, because you have both of those contrasts in place in both films. You have... It, present in both films, an arrogant officer class that doesn't really care terribly much about the massive human consequences of the decisions that they're making. And then you also have your heroes, uh, Kirk Douglas in, in Paths of Glory and, and Gal Gadot here, are on the front lines, are fighting alongside everyone and, and leading by example. I really like the fact that when Wonder Woman takes the generals to task for the decisions they're making about who will live and who will die and what what kind of acceptable losses they can live with. She is coming from an outsider perspective and she isn't jaded. She's furious at them and she screams at them and she puts them down. And at the same time, we have very similar scene with Kirk Douglas in Paths of Glory, but he is jaded. He mm -hmm. has been exposed to this and he knows his place and he comes from just a much more logical, rational, and also understanding that this isn't necessarily going to work kind of perspective. No, and their powers come from different places because Colonel Dax, he's leading through experience. Like he's been a soldier for a long time. He's he's worked his way up the ranks and like he's he's seen some shit, you know, and like that is what informs that cynicism. Whereas Diana is basically kind of a leader by default because she is the most powerful person. And, you know, she doesn't necessarily fully understand the full context of this battle that she is placing herself in the middle of. But she is just so powerful that she leads by inspiration more than through like knowledge or experience of what she's going into. She's also just seen people that she cares about die in battle for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. You know, she's spent her entire life training to be a warrior. And then for the first time, she's actually seen the people die in battle. And she she's very sensitive to it. She takes it very personally. Whereas Kirk Douglas, like we know what kind of losses he's dealt with and how many battles he's fought. None of this is new to him, but it's still it's fresh and personal because for the first time, people are looking him in the eye and telling him this is important when he knows it's not. This is just when he knows it's not. And uh, Dinah has an understanding of war that no one else can possibly have. Right? <laughs> she, she thinks it's, she thinks of it in terms of Aries yeah. and and uh, and these motives that are being uh, you know inflicted unnaturally upon mankind, making them behave in ways they would not otherwise if you were not creating mischief. I would say one big difference, though, is that Diana can lead a charge out of the trenches and without really much fear that she's going to be torn to shred by bullets, whereas Kirk Douglas's character cannot. But other than that, yes, I, I, I like the leading by example connection. As for like comparing the higher ups, the officers, that's another strong connection that is probably a little more, I don't want to say cartoony, but le less satirically approached in, in Wonder Woman than, than it is in Paths of Glory. I think it's worth noting that General Ludendorff, the villain that Diana believes is Ares, but it turns out is just a really bad guy. 
his whole thing is he doesn't want armistice. He doesn't want the armistice mm-hmm. to be signed. Like he wants to keep the war going because it benefits men in, in his position. I think it's because he knows he can win. I, yeah. I think he's a German true believer. I, he's based on a real man who was a, a German fanatic and mm-hmm. he's got a fascinating history if you want to look into him. But and yeah, he, he was... He, he was behind the concept of total war, which is basically committing all your country's resources to killing. Yeah. And I don't know that that's necessarily what's motivating the generals in Paths of Glory. I mean, they're, they're yeah. career military people and this is what they do. That's a good way of summing it up. I was going to say Moreau is motivated by the promotion that's coming and Brulard is motivated by public opinion. But yeah, that that really connects both of them neatly. Yeah, but they they seem like ultimately ambivalent about whether the the war itself goes on or not. It's more about their careers within the military, which exists whether there is a war or not. Sure. But the paths to glory are much more defined during wartime, of course. The paths of glory. I like it. One of the things, and I'm not, I'm not a comic book person, so I'm going to rely on on your expertise for this. But it is my understanding that that Wonder Woman was a World War II story, yeah. and not, and, and uh, I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts about what it means to do it instead as a World War One story, and 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 does it relieve it? I guess the would it be too freighted? I suppose you know to have her battling Nazis. I don't know. I, I've, I, that's something I'd love to hear an answer for from from Jenkins, who who's conceptualized this for many years. Why, why World War One and not World War Two? Uh, because I mean, she was created during World War Two, and all her earlier adventures are during World War Two. And it seems like you could almost slip this story into that just as easily as a World War One story. Um, I think it works very well as a World War One story. However, there are a fair number of elements that Jenkins seems to have really wanted to get into. One of them being uh, trench warfare and the difference that somebody pushing forward could make. But the the film is also built around this idea of a chemical weapon that is True. going to change the the face of the war. And that was World War One. World War One was called the chemists war because of the advent of mustard gas and how chemical weapons completely changed how combat operated and especially changed the ability to kill an entire battlefield of soldiers very quickly. I think it also scoots it a little further away from Captain America territory as well. As you know, when we're going down the list of World War One movies, there's not an overabundance of them. There's certainly a, a few classics and you know, all quite on the Western front and things we've talked about before, but it, it's less written over territory than World War Two. Yeah, agreed, though. There's there's also a sense here that I was talking to somebody afterwards about the degree to which the Germans here are so undefined that they might as well be Nazis. Like we don't really have an understanding of who their leadership is beyond Ares. Actually, maybe that's a reason for moving it to World War One. is she could plausibly – uh, Diana's idea is that if she kills Ares, the Germans – she says the Germans will go back to being good men. And it might have been a bridge too far to say if I kill Ares, Hitler will suddenly become a good man. It also adds a level of historical irony that we know that she doesn't, that she's in World War One. Uh, there's a sequel to follow that she, so she doesn't know about yet. Yeah, there's a sequel to follow, although there's still very much a question of whether that's going to be a contemporary movie. And and the no, leanings... I just mean there's a sequel to World War One that she that she cannot know. <laughs> yeah. Would Would you guys like to hear from the creators on why it was set in World War One? Yes, please. Love to. Okay. okay. Unless it contradicts everything we've just said. No, no, case, you no. are actually both. Circle. Can I get, Can I give you just one more guess? Yes. That you can also say something a little more significant about uh, where women's rights were at that particular point in history. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, there's all the suffragette talk from, yeah. from Etta Candy. Yeah. 
all that like a single line, but uh, there. it creates a subtext for the for everything that sure. follows. Um, that specifically is not brought up in the interview I found, which is from Entertainment Weekly, with both uh, the screenwriter Alan Heinberg and Patty Jenkins. According to Heinberg, he said, we are in a very World War I world today with nationalism and how it would take very little to start a global conflict. It's the first time we had an automated war. The machine gun was a new invention. Gas was used for the first time. New horrors were unleashed every day. And then Mm. Jenkins added, at first I questioned it because it wasn't her actual origin story, but I very quickly saw the genius behind it. World War I is the first time that civilization as we know it was finding its roots, but it's not something that we really know the history of. Even the way that it was unclear who was in the right of World War I is really interesting parallel to this time. Then you take a god with a moral compass and a moral belief system and you drop them into this world and there are questions about women's rights, about a mechanized war where you don't see who you are killing. So then she says, right. it's such a cool time, which I think is probably an unfortunate <laughs> way, way to end hard. that quote. I don't, know. I don't know how people get interviewed. And <laughs> I, I would step in it constantly, uh, which is why we edit this show rigorously to, to cut around all the stupid stuff that I say. One other thing, too, I wanted to get to with respect to the war is both films do uh, have lots of details specific to World War One, but they are also films about war period um and that's kind of you know as a as a as a principle um and that you could take both of these stories and have them play out in a different conflict and get um similar results yeah it's difficult because paths of glory as i said in the first half is kind of a story for every country for every era in terms of criticizing the old men who send young men off to fight mm-hmm. but wonder woman is uh is a little more specific i mean the whole idea that conflict, global conflict, is caused by uh, an angry god mm-hmm. who she killed—it's it's hinky. I mean, where does World War II come from? Where but do all it, the other wars come from? But it's not caused by him; it's urged along by him. Like I think that's a very interesting point that the film makes in that final battle with Ares is that he is not the one who is making men fight each other. He is simply egging them on and giving them the tools to do it more efficiently and inspiring them to make these tools of mechanized war that that we're talking about that are being used here for the first time. I, I think the idea that men will war no matter what is interesting and does kind of open up the Wonder Woman screen universe to to future wars without saying like okay wars wars solved now you know i just come back to okay but we have continued to move towards mechanized war Mm -hmm. and we've continued to be egged up into bigger and bigger conflicts so where's the explanation now i think he's not really dead it's a comic book movie you know i was really afraid of that though i I mean but i think also i think it is more important as a a symbol and 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 the whole speech about about him not being really the one causing i think is is important and i think in terms of just connections, it gets to the heart of both of these movies' perception of war, which is that it's complicated. And it's like, it's really trite to say it, but like, we like to think of war as very simple. It's us versus them. But when you get down into the details of it, there are so many smaller conflicts that complicate that simple us versus them mentality, whether it's you know, almost a personnel type issue like we see in, in Passive Glory or just the nature of man as we see in Wonder Woman. Like, it's hard to boil war down to a single issue. And I think both of these movies explore that from different angles. 
Uh, it's part of Diana's growth as a character. Too. Is realizing that, yeah, realizing that, and realizing that that the range and, and, and depth and just fascination of humans and all of their their flaws and nobility. I it was very short lived, but I really did enjoy the kind of coming back to the conversation on the boat. There is at least a moment in the film where maybe. It's not true that there's an evil God behind all of this and she is being naive and she is like living in a mythic basis that isn't actually going to be the basis of, of how the world works. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a little Bunny Lake is missing kind of moment of, so who's the crazy one here? And, <laughs> you know, they can't maintain that ambiguity long, but I was really glad to have it for the very brief period that we had it. And I allowed myself to entertain the notion of a movie where she gets out into the world. Like I knew who was going to turn out to be Aries. It was too obvious, but I did allow myself a moment of like, what if she goes and stabs this guy and nothing happens? And then she has to deal with actual war. And I might've liked that movie better. Well, that's the movie we got, Tasha. (laughs) There's always paths of glory. Yeah. I mean, you know, we we don't have to accept the movies that we've got. We can stand up against them. We can <laughs> we can give them sarcastic speeches or just wave our Hol- magic bracelets. Hollywood at them. will always make bad movies. We can just give them the tools to make better movies. <laughs> <laughs> Courtesy of your friends at Next Picture Show. Uh, so you can find Paths of Glory on Criterion or various streaming services. Wonder Woman is in theaters right now and probably will be there for quite some time. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. It's called Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? As Keith alluded to, several of us saw the 2017 remake of The Mummy last night, the movie that's meant to kick off Universal Studios' Dark Universe (laughs) franchise, which at the moment they've got eight movies greenlit based on, as uh, our friend David Sims said, based on the success of zero movies so far. (laughs) Um, And everybody here loved it so much Mm -hmm. that uh, we're not going to discuss it on the show. So the fact that I went home last night after watching that movie and watched the 1932 original Universal Studios picture, uh, The Mummy, uh, I thought that we were perhaps going to get to talk about it, but it looks like we're not. So I'm just going to recommend that movie, The the Mummy original. (laughs) There's been so much misinformation out there from people who think that the 2017 Mummy is a remake of the 1999 Brendan Fraser movie. And it does take a few elements directly from that, uh, including giant CGI evil faces in the clouds and a preponderance of uh, evil CGI bugs. But a lot of the basic bones of that movie come from the 32 original, uh, which was directed by Carl Freund and stars Boris Karloff as Imhotep the, the Mummy, the reincarnated, uh, previously dead uh, figure from Egypt's historical past. And this movie is its just so interesting to me. It's, it's got that kind of 1932 pacing where there's a lot of you know, people staring fervently into each other's eyes and declaring their uh, mortal love for each other based on the five minutes they've spent in each other's presence. But the cinematography in this movie is so sharp. And Karloff, it's, it's the camera spends so much time pushed in close on Karloff's incredibly seamy face. The costuming, uh, especially on him, is just is so amazing. 
the emotions in this movie are really interesting. The narrative in this movie is really interesting in terms of it not really being about a monster in the same way the Frankenstein movie starring Karloff is not really about a monster. It's about both of these movies are kind of about this creature with a a soulfulness and a longing that can't really work in today's society, today's society being the 1930s, because, <laughs> uh, you know, those the impulses that they reflect are dangerous. Much like a lot of the early Universal Studios monster movies, it's less about a creature that is horrifying and more about impulses and emotions that can be horrifying if left unrestrained. It's a really interesting story. It's it's well told. It's streaming on Amazon and iTunes and Vudu, like all of these different services. You can rent it for like four bucks. It comes in under 90 minutes. It's just it's way, a, way under 90. Yeah, minutes. it's like 73. It's a nice, tight little story that will just consistently surprise you, I think, if you haven't seen it already, uh, which as of last night, I hadn't. Uh, with just the quality of the images and the, the quality of the performance and some of the chills, which are pretty chilling. It's my favorite of the Universal Monster movies. And, and you know, you can watch it in, in less time than it takes to watch two episodes of uh, House of Cards and you'll probably <laughs> like it better. <laughs> so what about you, Keith? Now that you're talking? I wasn't here last episode. And I think it's in our bylaws. I get to do two recommendations. <laughs> um, it's written there. So I'll, I'll make them quick. I only did the one. So you've got like five or six to play with. <laughs> um, one is uh, Paint It Black which is a the directorial debut of the actress Amber Tamblin. Uh, I'm not even sure how wide of a release it's getting, but it's terrific. I mean, she's uh, got a really sharp eye and a real feel for mood and, and some of the best montage sequences I've seen in a long time. It's an adaptation of a book by Janet Fitch, who wrote White Oleander, and it stars uh, Aaliyah Shawkat uh, in, a, in a really nice uh, dramatic performance. Uh, you know her from Rest of Development and mostly comedic roles as a sort of a you know young woman in L.A. Her boyfriend commits suicide, and she kind of gets into the sort of love-hate, mostly hate relationship with his mother, played by Janet McTeer, who's this classical pianist who lives in this crumbling L.A. mansion, very kind of Sunset Boulevardy type existence. It's a really great, moody film and, and a really auspicious debut for Tamblin, who, who bought the rights she was going to star in this film and ended up taking on the role as director and handing the lead role to Shawkat, who, again, is fantastic. So, like I said, I'm not sure. I know I played New York and L.A. I'm not sure if it's going to go much beyond that. But when it becomes available, I would definitely seek it out. The other one is another one that you probably have to dig a little to get to, um, which is appropriate when I uh, describe what it's about. It's called Dawson City Frozen Time. It's from director Bill Morrison. And it's about this discovery in this gold rush town called Dawson City in the Yukon, which was kind of the epicenter of the 1898 gold rush and a period after that was kind of the end of the line for film distribution so distributors would send their films there because studios and distributors didn't place that much value in film in in the silent era there are products that kind of like run once and you throw them away didn't ask for them back and a lot of like 500 reels of film that didn't exist anywhere else or many of which were not in existence anywhere else were, were found buried in the ground in 1970s preserved by by the permafrost you know you can make a really interesting movie just kind of doing a a straightforward approach to that instead what bill morrison does and he tells that story very well but he also tells the story of dawson city uh using mostly clips from the movies that were found there some other home movies from there some documentaries that were shot in the yukon and an occasional like a little bit of of things like the gold rush charlie chaplin film that just another period film there and and laying over intertitles about the history of the town you know went from nothing built up to this boom town and then kind of like 
decayed over the years. Um, it's great. It takes a little bit to get into the pace of it, which was very stately. A lot of it's set to this really wonderful score by Alex Summers, the sort of, who is the personal and sometimes professional partner of uh, Jonesy from from the band Seeger Roos. It's a great score, a really hypnotic experience. It's all about, it's about movies and history and time. And yeah, I'd highly recommend it. Neat. How did you find it? You said it takes some digging. Right now, it's just playing New York and LA. And I'm not sure how much wider release it's going to get after that. I, I found it because I reviewed it for Uproxx. Uh, so and become I thought... a film critic so you can get a screener. <laughs> <laughs> or move to New York or LA or wait maybe six months. I'm sure Dawson City Frozen Time, remember that name, will uh, tr- turn up somewhere. Scott, how about you? What have you seen? Uh, well, well, for once, I'm going to take a break from recommending a film and recommend a bunch of little uh, little films. Back in April um, at the Chicago Film Critics Festival here in Chicago, I had the privilege of hosting a, a Q&A with this director named Koganata, who made his debut feature called Columbus, which is coming out August 4th. And uh, a quite interesting debut film um, set, set in Indiana, it's, which is a specific town in Indiana, which happens to be Mike Pence's uh, hometown. That has that is just full of modernist architecture. It's like this extraordinary town where, where all this modern architecture exists, and, it, and it's got this. Uh, it's a very Ozu influenced film, and it's something I think you're going to want to check out. But what you can check out now, uh, what Koganata got his reputation making uh, video essays, and if you go to koganata.com, K-O-G-O-N-A. DA.com. You can check them all out. Oftentimes my eyes glaze over at the thought of uh, video essays. They're not often done that well. But what interests Koganata more than anything is form and putting together these montage sequences or these these very short, uh, maybe two or three minute uh, films that make all these visual connections You know about a, a filmmaker, for example. like He's got one called Passageways that is all about Ozu's passageways. He's got a film called The Eyes of Hitchcock, which is all the eyes of Hitchcock, and the low-angle framing of Quentin Tarantino, one about the sound and Aronofsky's work. And so you're able to make all of these like intuitive connections between these directors' films and get a sense of their kind of auteurist touches and do it without any narration. It's just all pure... Uh, visual and it really kind of gives you you know makes you feel kind of just excited about the dynamism of the movies he also did um, a really cool short about the construction of criterion designs um, in his style so I, I totally recommend checking it out and you know it's like candy it's like candy uh, watching these uh, films and they, they will only take you a little bit of time uh, per short and, and they're all highly I- dynamic and, and enjoyable and extremely well edited and uh, you can see uh, how that talent uh, carries over and that strong visual sensibility carries over into his debut feature Columbus which is out early August. Man, between uh, that and the, my nerd writer recommendation last week, we're making everybody uh, better film critics, including us. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy? Oh, just you wait. I have some more candy for you. Okay. So if you listen to this podcast and are on Twitter, there's a very good chance you subscribe to the One Perfect Shot feed, which is affiliated with the website and podcast Film School Rejects and posts beautiful stills from a broad range of films. Um, It's been a fairly Twitter-specific exercise for a while, but those of you who are not on Twitter or who just love combing through movie stills can now experience One Perfect Shot in database form. Uh, Film School Rejects this week updated and relaunched the One Perfect Shot database, which allows you to sort all these shots by cinematographer, director, or shot type. So if you're looking for the best of Christopher Doyle or want to explore some extreme high-angle shots, you can do that much more easily. 
But that's actually only the introduction to my real recommendation, which is a second database that Film School Rejects posted at the same time, which is a video database that compiles and categorizes around 400 different video essays from all over the (laughs) internet. Um, I've only had a little time to explore it so far, but there is a ton of really good stuff on there. And some not so good stuff, but mostly good stuff, ranging from supercuts and fan edits to more academic style video essays on topics like framing, pacing, color, as well as movie specific essays. And as with the shot database, you can sort based on video creator, video type and subject. Uh, It's really cool and well executed. And there's just a ton of great stuff on there to sift through. The still shot database can be found at shots.filmschoolrejects.com and the video database is at video.filmschoolrejects.com. Well, it's good to know because lately I've just been experiencing one perfect shot through parodies of one perfect shot on Twitter So because it's become kind of a, a meme to make yeah. uh, to make jokes. I, yeah. I, 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 I thought I'd be tired of that by now, but it's one of those, those memes I just never get tired of. I, I really enjoy the one perfect shot parodies. I, I mean, I, I admit that like I've kind of like stopped following it on, on Twitter, but I really do like exploring it in this database format just because you can sort by shot type and there's a ton a ton of shot types like dutch angle extreme long shot foreground outlaw shot trunk shot like it's a really interesting exercise to just kind of sort them in that way you know that you don't get from the immediate singular twitter yeah it's good to have them there because i mean twitter is such a such an immediate thing and if it goes Mm -hmm. away it's really hard to, to dig up again so yeah we'll have to check that out So that is it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out June 27th and 29th. Keith, what do we have lined up? With our next episodes, we'll be plunging into the darkness with two films about claustrophobia, isolation, and the links we'll go to to survive. Our inspiration film will be It Comes at Night, the second film from director Trey Edward Schultz, a tightly focused post-apocalyptic tale of two families compelled to share a single sprawling house in the aftermath of a devastating plague. We'll be comparing it to The Thing, John Carpenter's 1982 remake of the 1951 science fiction classic The Thing from Another World, that doubles as a depiction of psychological disintegration at a remote Antarctic outpost. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Paths of Glory and Wonder Woman and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha Robinson. You can find me writing about film and TV over at TheVerge.com. And you can find me writing about Wonder Woman there as well. Oh, I also just uh, did an interview with Elena Anaya, uh, who plays Dr. Poison in the movie. And that interview was amazing. I'm looking forward to it being up by the time these uh, these podcasts go out. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. It's always cool to get somebody no one's talking to, right? I yeah, mean, nobody's talking to her. And I, I got I had so much behind-the-scenes stuff from her. I haven't heard anywhere else. She just seemed really excited to talk about this character who she loved playing. Yeah, that's, that's <sighs> awesome. Uh, Keith, what about you? You can find me at uprocks.com, and you can find me on Twitter at kfips3000. And Genevieve? I'm at the culture section at vox.com and on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work in the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, Vulture, Variety, Uprox, uh, Guardian, and other fine publications. I am also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. 
And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance in producing the show. And thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Thank you.